After, as Kerwin said, we've had a tough week here, a sorrowful week, but sorrowful and rejoicing um, in faith becoming sight. And this morning I'm going to read uh, from Matthew chapter 25, and though we're going to focus on verses 14 through 30, I'm going to read the whole chapter of chapter 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five of them were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And the bridegroom was delayed, and they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. For it will be like a man going on a long journey who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, and each according to his ability. Then he went away. And he who'd received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the, ten, the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents and, and uh, came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also had, the one who had two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I've made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also had one who had received the one talent, and he came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I had not sown and gathered where I had no, not scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own plus interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given." and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left." Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation 
of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to the least of these, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in person, and did not minister to you? Then he will say to them, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of these of the least, you did not do it for me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So Jesus was a pretty practical guy. Sometimes he gets a bad rap for being a little too ethereal, sometimes for being a little too theological. But I just want to point out to you that in this passage we've been looking at last week and this week, this is Jesus' last discourse to his disciples before he goes to the cross. He gives 15 verses on the end of the world. Right? We talked a little bit about this last week. He gave uh, 15 verses that have played a very outsized role in our speculation as believers on when is the end going to happen? How is the end going to happen? What's it going to be like? And the point of last week's message is, trust me, you'll know it when you see it. And it will be wonderful for those who have trusted in Christ. To those who endure to the end, they will be saved, and the kingdom will be preached across the whole world, and then the end will come. So Jesus gives us 15 verses about the end, and 50 verses about what to do in the meantime. This is how Jesus always teaches. There's something that we don't know much about, and he spends a little bit of time on that, just enough to give us hope to trust in his promises. But then he gives us everything we need to obey and follow and walk with him until we get there. And so this morning I read these three passages to you for two reasons. Number one, this this chapter is full of lines that all of us know. If you spend any time in church, you've heard, well done, good and faithful servant. You've heard about the talents. You've heard about the sheep and the goats. You've heard, when did we do all these things? As much as you did for the least of these, you did for me. And I want to draw your attention this morning to the point that these are all in a sequence of three parables spoken in judgment over Jerusalem and the people who do not follow Christ. And spoken as an encouragement to those who are starting to get the picture, this might take a while for Jesus to come back. But the other reason, and and we see this in the parable we're going to look at this morning, the parable of the talents, which is the, the middle, is the specificity with which Jesus gives us marching orders until his second coming. The first parable of the ten virgins is one of the more confusing parables that Jesus tells. But but the main message is watch and wait. Be ready. For when Jesus comes. The second one is, while you're waiting, be working. There's something for you to be doing while you're waiting. 
And the third one, the sheep and the goats is, and while you're working, make sure it looks like this. You see how specific Jesus gets? He leaves no questions. He is totally unequivocal about what we should be doing as we're waiting. Now, in each of these three stories, Jesus begins the exact same way. This is Jesus' favorite way to talk about what it's like to live between the ascension of Christ and the second coming of Christ. It's like a king or a master who went away on a long journey and left his servants to do something. That's the way Jesus loves to talk about the situation we're in right now. Think about it this way. We're in between two, a set of parentheses. There's been an open parenthesis when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, and someday there will be a closed parenthesis. We just don't know when that's going to be. Now, in Luke 19, Jesus tells a very similar parable to the parable of the talents. And Luke gives us this little editorial introduction. He says, Jesus, as they heard these things and they proceeded uh, into Jerusalem, he told them these things because they supposed that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So this morning, our, our work in front of us in this passage is to understand that if Jesus comes today or tomorrow or in a thousand years, we have no question about what we should be doing as we wait for him. So this morning, I want to look at the parable of the talents, and, and I want you to understand the origin of the talents, the purpose of the talents, and the promise of the talents. The origin of the talents, the purpose of the talents, and the promise of the talents. So in, in this parable... The master leaves, and he entrusts his servants with three different amounts called talents. And, and this is kind of fortuitous for us that in the English we have talent because it reveals that this is not primarily a parable about money. Even though the master does leave them sums of money, big sums of money, the difference between this parable and the one in Luke is, in Luke he leaves them things on the order of five or $10,000. Here, people debate as to how much this is, but it's a measurement of weight. A talent is like 75 pounds of a material. So scholars have, have guessed that maybe this is on the order of 1, 20, and 100 million dollars. This is a lot of money. But it's a parable about God's money, and we're talking about a God who doesn't need money. Okay, this is not a parable about money. It's about being entrusted with something. This is why the word talent is so helpful for us because anything that we have been given by God is supposed to be used for his kingdom. And the origin in this story is so obvious. Everything the servants have is from the master. Everything, everything that they have is from the master, even their own lives. If you look at the very beginning of this, it says, it's like a man going on a journey who doesn't call his friends, he doesn't call the executor of his estate, he doesn't call a manager, he calls his slaves, his slaves, his bondservants, the people that not just work for him, but belong to him. So we don't get the sense here that this is a group of peer professionals and they are investing on the master's behalf. We get the sense that these people owe everything to this person, not just the money they've been entrusted with, but their very lives to the master. And the origin of everything is the master's, and the expectation is the master will take everything when he comes 
back. There's a contrast if you have been going through the Gospel of Matthew with us. If you go all the way back to chapter 21 in the parable of the tenants, the parable of the tenants and the parable of the talents are opposites of each other. If the master leaves you with a great sum of money, with a great sum of talents, what are you going to do with it? In the parable of the tenants, they revolt and claim it as their own, and when the master tries to come back, they beat his messengers and kill his son so that they can take it and own it for themselves. But in this one, it's people who understand that everything is God's, and I've been entrusted with certain things, and so I have a duty to God to do something with what he's given to me. See, the origin in this parable is everything is from God. So that, so that means our innate gifts and characteristics. That means like the things that we take for granted that we have, our strength, our personality, our family of origin. Nobody got to choose that. Nobody chose where you were born, when you were born, to whom you were born. Those things were all determined by God. We sometimes joke that our girls prepped a house like ours in some kind of heavenly sorority uh, rush week in heaven, but, but that's not how it works. You got no say. You could have been born 3,000 years ago. You could have been born 3,000 miles away, but you were born into the family that you were born into, and that is of God. And since then, you've added achievements, gifts, skills, education to that. You're skills that you bring to the table, the wealth that you've accumulated, the things that you know how to do are all included in this category of what God has given. Thirdly, and, and maybe most excitingly, when you become a Christian, the Bible is clear that you have been given certain spiritual gifts to use for God's purposes, that as he sees fit to build up the church, he is going to entrust you with gifts to build up the body. And we call those gifts of the Spirit, not just because they come from the Spirit, but because they belong to the Spirit. So whether it's your innate gifts, or your achievements, or your spiritual gifts, or anything else that you have, the origin is from God. And so one of the things that this parable calls us to do is take a quick inventory of our life and say, what are the talents I've been given, and how am I supposed to be using those for God's kingdom. You could actually sit down and write down like a, a personal balance sheet in your life and say, what have I been entrusted with? And how can I turn all of that and use it for God? Some of you remember the movie Apollo 13. Some of you actually remember Apollo 13. But for others of you, you remember the movie Apollo 13. <laughs> I saw it after it had been out for a few years, and things start to go wrong on Apollo 13 when there's an explosion in an oxygen tank, and there's this great scene in the movie, no doubt dramatized for TV, but there's this great scene in the movie where they realize they've got a problem, not just on the outside of the shuttle, they've got a problem on the inside because the carbon dioxide scrubber, which has its own Wikipedia page, has blown up. So what was happening is the amount of oxygen in the place where the astronauts are is getting lower and lower and lower and lower. And there's this amazing scene um, in the movie where the engineers at NASA are talking about this. And they're coming to their leader and they're saying, you know, the problem is 
we don't have any oxygen to put in there, and we're not able to take out any carbon dioxide. And he's like, well, why don't you just switch to the backups? And they say, well, the, the backups have a square nozzle, and the regular ones have a circle nozzle. And <laughs> in the next scene, the lead engineer has assembled everything they have in the spacecraft. They get everything that they would have in the spacecraft, and they dump it out on the table, and the lead engineer guy goes, all right, guys, we've got to find a way to fit this into this using nothing but that. It's a great scene. And once they figure out how to do it, they send word up to the astronauts and say, you'll find this here, and you'll find this there, and you'll find that, and put them together this way, and we can construct what we need to to fit the square peg in the round hole. And as you know, the, the movie ends, and spoiler alert, they are able to get the carbon dioxide fixed, they're able to get oxygen, they're able to come back, and it's all because they carefully selected just the things they had that ended up fixing just the problem they needed to solve. And, and we get the sense in the Bible, when, when Jesus says outrageous things, or the Spirit says outrageous things like, everything you need for life and godliness you have been given. When Paul starts Ephesians chapter 1, the theme of Ephesians is, you have been blessed through Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has given us everything that we need to take this, our life, our talents, our gifts, fit it into that which is the kingdom of heaven using only what we've been given by him. The problem for us is the exact same as it is for them. Everything you have is everything you need through God's help and His Spirit to accomplish what He has for your life. So everybody's been given something. We just need to be aware enough of what God has done to take the resources, the talents, the gifts that we have and put them to use in the kingdom of God. So what's the purpose of the talents? This is, where, this is where the interpretations of this parable get really wonky. So what, what kind of return is God looking for? In, in the parable itself, the person who has the most talents and the person who has the second most talents, they both come back and they have doubled the master's money. And again, I just want to remind you here, this is a concept that represents everything in our life, but it isn't tied directly to Money. In fact, it's, it's an evil interpretation of this passage that if you are good with God, you should expect a double financial return in your life. That if you've been a Christian for five minutes, you realize that is not the case for Christians. So, so what is the point then? What is God expecting as a return on your life? What is God looking for when he comes and settles accounts with you? What is he going to be asking for? The easiest answer is a, a continuation of everything Jesus has been teaching. Our, the goal of our life is to get the gospel all the way down, to get the transformation that comes through following Jesus into every corner of who we are. That, that means that what, what we're supposed to be doing is not partitioning out part of the master's estate for ourselves, but investing all of it into the cause of God. Simply put, in the language of Matthew, your job and my job as a disciple of Jesus is not just to look like Jesus, but in doing so, to build the kingdom of God. 
to give our lives and to leverage ourselves and everything we have to see the kingdom of heaven come to earth. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus tells a very similar parable. And you know, I'll just say as an aside, the reason for that is Jesus probably told these a bunch. Right? It wasn't just like one time and Luke has some different details and Matthew has some different details. This parable is probably one of the things Jesus taught all over the place. And the parable in Luke is, is slightly different, but it's told right after a very interesting story. It's the story of a man named Zacchaeus. So Zacchaeus, as you know, was a wee little man. And more importantly than that, he was a tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. And the description that we get of Zacchaeus is he's the lowest of low characters in the Gospels. In fact, I think I preached on this two years ago. You can go through that text and you can be assured that the way Luke describes Zacchaeus, he wants you to know you're not going to find a more vile, evil, twisted character in the Gospels than this guy, Zacchaeus. He's in a trade He's on a trade route, he's in, he's in Jericho, and this is where you would have been exacting tolls on the people that came by. And it's not just anybody that would be coming through there, it would be people who were on their way into Jerusalem who would go by here. So Zacchaeus, who's taken essentially a Greek name but is of Jewish origin, has sold himself out to the occupiers, the Romans, and is skimming money off of his fellow Jews so that he can get rich. I mean, this guy is a bad guy. Well, as the song goes, Jesus goes by, and he's up in the sycamore tree, and he sees what he can see, and what he sees is Jesus, and Jesus tells him, I'm going to your house today. But something amazing happens when Jesus gets to Zacchaeus's house. So it tells us that Jesus and Zacchaeus make this agreement, and he comes down and receives them into his house, and Probably the, the, the way the wording is, is is not like he just comes for lunch. It's that he's, Jesus and his disciples stay as house guests at Zacchaeus' house. In fact, they probably spend the night there. And Zacchaeus, because he's so rich from what he's done, probably has a grand, wonderful, opulent place to live. And people are grumbling, saying, he's gone to be the guest of Zacchaeus? Well, they're having a meal And as Jesus and Zacchaeus are talking to each other, it tells us that Zacchaeus stands up, I think for the first time in his life, to his full height and says to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus says to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a child of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And then Jesus opens his mouth and tells this parable. See, what we would do well to do is to take a minute and think about what actually happened in Zacchaeus that day. How how does somebody go from a greedy, exploitative, evil person to someone who stands up and says, I'm ready to get rid of all of this, if it means I can be right with my Lord. What has to happen in somebody's heart for that to happen? Well, you have to grasp the very thing that Jesus is explaining in this parable. None of the stuff is yours anyway. 
It was always on loan. And for the first time, Zacchaeus realizes, I can stop building a kingdom for myself. I can, I can stop exploiting other people to meet my needs. And I can turn around and start participating in what God has done. See, the problem with Zacchaeus is he was living against the grain of his own purpose for his whole life. And in sitting there with Jesus, he finally saw the futility of building his own kingdom and the opportunity of joining a kingdom that would never fail. See, see, most of us have to have that realization in life. As enticing as it is, we are building temporary, flimsy kingdoms for ourselves when we could join a kingdom that Jesus says the gates of hell won't prevail against. Which kingdom are you going to be a part of? See, that's the question for the servants in this parable is, whose kingdom are you going to build? God's or your own? And the interesting thing is, the purpose of the talents isn't just to build the kingdom, it's to show allegiance to the kingdom. There's, there's a wrinkle here that a first century Jew would have heard in this parable because they would be familiar with what happened with this king, this master, this king. He, he goes away on a journey, and often this would happen when the regime changes. So, for example, we, we know of this happening in Judea twice. Herod the Great, when Augustus becomes king, leaves and goes to get his kingship and come back. And that was not a given when he did that. In fact, the odds were stacked against Herod. He had taken the side of the wrong guy, Mark Antony, in the battle for who was going to succeed Julius Caesar. He had been a very upfront, outspoken supporter of the wrong guy. And so Herod, who was the king, but who knew that he was imminently going to be replaced, goes to Rome to beg Augustus to leave him as the king. And what happened was, the people that were left behind, who were managing his estate, had a choice to make. What do you think his odds are of becoming king? Because if he comes back and is king, and you have been supporting him, you are going to be in for a reward when he comes back. If he comes back and he is not king and you have been working for him, you are going to be put to death. If he comes back and he is king and you haven't been working for him, you are going to be put to death. The only other good option is you haven't been working for him and he comes back and he isn't king or he doesn't come back at all. So you've got to, you've got to place your bet. In fact, this happens with Herod, and he comes back, and he is king, and he gets rid of everybody that had worked against him. But his son goes and does the same thing later on and never returns. And the new king takes vengeance on the people that have been loyal to Herod. See, this story is, is not just about what are you going to do with what you've been given. It's what does what you do with what you've been given say about who your loyalty is to. See, to invest this amount of money is not something that you could just do silently, right? You, you've got to hang up a shingle that says King Herod's bar and grill with the proceeds while he's gone, or Herod family investments with the money. You, you've got to signal to people, this is the master's money. And, and this explains one of the things at the end of this parable that is kind of perplexing. See, you, you know, he says to the, to the person that buries the money in the ground, he says, you wicked and lazy servant. 
lazy, I get. He didn't want to work. He didn't want to do anything. He didn't want to invest. But why, why wicked? Have you thought about that? Why wicked? I mean, so this guy's a little more prudent. He's a little more risk-averse than the other guys. Why, what, you know, what's wrong with that? Well, what the first century audience would have understood is this person didn't want to be a representative of the master who had gone away because he didn't know if he was going to return on the right side of the deal. This person buried the money in the ground because if the master doesn't come back, he's going to take all the money. He's going to run away with all the money. That's why he says, not just lazy, but wicked servant. This person didn't want to signal that their loyalties were with the master, and so they hid the money so that they could take it in the case that he didn't return. So for us at reading this parable, there's a new dimension to this. It's, it's, it's not just about building the kingdom. It's about signaling our allegiance to Jesus in what looks for the moment, in a lot of moments, like a losing cause. Have you ever felt that way before, that if you leverage everything for Jesus and it turns out that maybe it wasn't true like you thought it was? Paul says if the resurrection didn't happen, we are the most pitiable of all people. You know, self-sacrifice and self-denial and giving ourselves away and laying ourselves down on behalf of others. What a bunch of idiots. If none of this is true, we look like the dumbest people in the history of the world. But the servants who were praised said, I'm all in with this master. He is going to return, and when he does, I want him to know that I am with him. And for this parable to mean something for us, you have to realize that using what you've been given and spending yourself signals that you are loyal to a king who has gone away and who is returning. And when he returns, we want him to know, I'm with you. It looked like for a while maybe you weren't going to come back. And it looked like this wasn't going to pay off. But I love this quote by G.K. Chesterton. One perfectly divine thing, one glimpse of, the, of heaven on earth is to fight a losing battle and not lose. Sometimes that's the Christian life. The master is gone, and we're waiting, and we're working, and we're building his kingdom, not our kingdom, until he comes back. The last thing I want you to see in this parable is the promise of the talents. So we, we've talked about the origin. We've talked about the purpose. Here's the promise of the talents. What is Jesus promising us in this section of Scripture? You know, the, the broader section that we've been dealing with here is about the end times. And, and a lot of times in the end times, you hear people use the word apocalypse, right? The apocalypse, uh, which we, we kind of interpret to mean the end of the world. An apocalypse is something catastrophic that happens. That's not what the word apocalypse means in the Bible. The, the word apocalypse is, is a Greek word, and it means to reveal. It means to reveal what is truly there. In fact, the book of Revelation is called the apocalypse of John, not because an apocalypse of catastrophic proportions happens in the book, but because Revelation is meant to reveal to us the way the world really is. It may not seem that way, but let me let me pull back the veil a little bit so you can see what the world is really like. An apocalypse is a revelation of what is true. And this apocalyptic literature, this section of Scripture that Jesus is giving to us is to help us see the real nature of the world. It's, it's to help us understand what the world is really 
like. And, and here's, a, here's a principle of interpretation in the Bible. Always let the clear passages interpret the unclear passages, right? If there's things that are just abundantly clear in the Bible, we know 100% what they mean, let those characterize the unclear passages. And I, and I just mentioned that to say, the first part of chapter 24 and the middle part of chapter 24 are kind of unclear, right? When's, how long is the millennium, and is it literal, and do we know? And I heard, I think R.C. Sproul one time said, we should land on our views of that part of the end time like butterflies with sore feet. But here... Chapter 25, this is abundantly clear. This is so clear. There are two outcomes at the end of the world. Only two. There are only two outcomes at the end of the world. This is a two-value assessment of the universe. And this is Jesus here, okay? This isn't like, you know, some people are like, well, you know, I love Jesus, but I hate all the wrath. So th these, are, these are red letters, if we can trust anything Jesus says, we can trust this. He talks about it all the time. There is going to be a judgment. There is going to be everlasting life with God. And there is going to be everlasting torment away from the presence of God. It may not be, if you were writing a book, you may not have included that part. But God decided to include that in his book because he wants you to know the way the world really is. That's the way he's designed it. So we get the righteous in one camp and we get the unrighteous in the other and it sounds like this crazy exclusive thing that God is doing and you hear people say this all the time, it's just two ways, that's just so, ex that's so exclusive. What about everybody else? Jesus says in verse 29, everyone who has, more will be given and they will have an abundance but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Man, that doesn't sound very Christ-like. Here's the thing. Jesus gives an exclusive picture of the universe that contains the most inclusive offer that could ever be offered. You can't earn it. You can't achieve it. You can never put God in your debt. You can never make it to where you versus somebody else has more merit for what God has to offer. The only thing you can do is admit that you don't measure up and you're in. That's it. I don't measure up. I failed the test, I didn't pass, my sin separates me from God, am I eligible for the kingdom of heaven? In fact, that's the only way to be eligible. That's Jesus' grand point about the end of the world is nobody can do it except Jesus, who has made an offer to you by his blood on the cross, that if you're unworthy and you feel far from God and you feel like you don't measure up, you are a candidate for the kingdom of heaven. It's the world's most inclusive, exclusive offer. So which one will you be? That's the point of all of this is he says there are some, and when he returns, they have given everything to him, and they've lived for him, and they've trusted in him, and they will go on with no exceptions to eternal life. And there are some who have not followed him and have not given themselves to him and have not lived for him, and they will go on to eternal separation from God. So which one do you want to be? Where do you want to end up? You know, Jesus, he says these wonderful lines at the end of this. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a little bit. Now I will give you much more. And I think the, the best part of this line is, come and enter into the joy of your master. Did you know that the reason God created all of this the reason that God 
created the universe, created you, is so that you could enter into his joy. So that you and I, being partakers in his family, could enter into life and joy with God. You know, John puts it this way at the beginning of his letter. He says, we write these things to you so that your joy can be complete, as our joy is complete. And our joy is not our joy. It's the joy of the Father that we have been given. The purpose of your life is to experience the joy of your master in heaven. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You know, we talk about these lines a lot. We say these words a lot. We long to hear these words a lot. But stop longing to hear these words and know that these words are yours. See, this week, when we were standing there, not even more than a few minutes after I was standing there with Susan, thinking about David, I thought of these words. You know, and I mentioned last week that God will watch over his word. He will plan out his word. And if you thought last week, end of the world Israel stuff was kind of cool that he planned that out, how about this week? Here we are just clinging to God's word. In our passage this week, well done, good and faithful servant. And it's not just teaching for us this week. It's real life. We've seen it happen. Because you know what? I didn't have to stand there and wonder. This is a horrible situation to be in as a pastor. I didn't have to stand there and wonder. I wonder if he heard, well done, good and faithful servant. I wonder where he is. That thought never crossed my mind because I know David. And as we were standing there, David was gone. The Lord had already come and taken him home safely. And we knew that. And that that doesn't mean that we don't sorrow. It means that we are sorrowful and always rejoicing. Because none of us standing there had to think, I wonder what's going to happen with him. The moment his eyes opened, well done, good and faithful servant. I love the way that it says it even later in this passage, even more when Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. He says, come, you who are blessed by my Father. Come inherit the kingdom that's been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God has been working on something for those who love him from before you were born. That in that moment, he ushers you into something that he has been working on just for you because you loved his son. So there's only one way to know. Do you repent of your sin? Do you trust in Jesus? Are you willing to admit that Building a kingdom for yourself is futile? Are you willing to jump in with Jesus and begin to build his kingdom? And are you willing to live for him? And are you willing to signal that all my allegiance is with you? Because then you can know, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. This morning as we celebrate communion, we're proclaiming that truth. You know, I said every week, Jesus didn't just say, do this. He said, do this in remembrance of me. As often as you eat the bread and drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. What we proclaim in the Lord's death is that when Jesus comes again, there will be a judgment, and there will be one of these two sets of words. And by coming forward to this table, we're saying, I'm with Jesus. All my stuff, everything I've got, I'm with him. 
And I'm going to hear those words when he comes back. And I'm, I'm going to be at the banquet when he comes back. And I'm, I'm going to be with him forever. And if that's you this morning, as we come for a communion, you need to celebrate that. That that is you. And you need to celebrate that we have people in our own church, people in your families, people that you know that are currently there. And one day that will be you. And that will be me. But if you're here this morning and as people come up, you don't know and you want to know that you will hear that, don't come up for communion. Come talk to me and we can talk about what it takes to throw in with Jesus, to be forgiven of our sins, and to know that we will hear him say, come into the joy of your master. Let me pray. Father, what a wonderful gift this morning to read these words in this text that you've prepared for us. Father, what a joy to know that there's nothing we can do to earn what you have prepared for us. Your son has earned it for us. So, Father, this morning we come with heavy and with thankful hearts contemplating what it will be like when you come back for us and take us into your kingdom. Father, this morning as we worship and as we celebrate communion, would you turn our hearts to you, to your son, maybe even for the first time, Lord, to what he did for us on the cross and what you have prepared for us in eternity. Father, we love you and we lift up the name of your son, Jesus, who has gone away but is coming back. And we are working, Lord. We are building your kingdom here because we love you. It's in his name we pray. Amen.